Father, we come to your word uh, tonight. We want more than just uh, intellectual stimulation. Uh, We want more than just a word that uh, we think would bring us self-improvement. Lord, we want to see you. We want to see you high and lifted up. We want our hearts to burn within us because we have seen you in your word. So, Lord, send your spirit upon us now. Amen. Uh, this is uh, week three of being in Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah is a book in the Old Testament. And uh, the last two weeks, what we've seen is that uh, Nehemiah was uh, a cupbearer. He's a cupbearer to the king of Persia. And uh, he is a cupbearer there as a Jew. And uh, some of his Jewish brothers and sisters have returned back to Jerusalem. Uh, and they've rebuilt the temple. And a few of those friends have come to Nehemiah. Nehemiah asked them for a report. Hey, how are how, how are my fellow Jews? How are things going back there in Jerusalem? And uh, they said, well, not great. Yeah, the temple's been rebuilt, but uh, the walls and the gates, uh, the gates have been burned down and the walls have been torn down. Uh, and it's kind of a mess. You know, the city's very vulnerable uh, to outside attack. And uh, Nehemiah weeps. Uh, Nehemiah weeps not just because he's sad for uh, the fact that they're unsafe, but he's also uh, sad because he knows that the reason they're in that position is partly because of their sin. And so he repents and on behalf of himself and all the people and uh, prays for 100 days. And after 100 days, he goes before the king, the one uh, to whom he serves, the one he's on the right hand. He's testing everything before the king eats or drinks it uh, so that the king doesn't get poisoned. And uh, he goes with a long face before the king. The king says, why are you sad? And he said, well, it's my people. It's my people back in Jerusalem that they're a mess. And uh, the king says, well, uh, what, what do you want from me? And, uh, he, and Nehemiah said, I'd like to be released. And he said, done. You're released. Go and help them. And, and by the way, I, I'd love to flip the bill. Here's a blank check for you to pay for this work. And Nehemiah couldn't believe it. So Nehemiah goes back with a blank check. He goes back with the king's escort, his army escort, to make sure that he's safe between Persia and Jerusalem. And he gets to Jerusalem and he goes halfway around the gates and has a pretty good idea of uh, the, the state of things. And he goes before his Jews knowing the state of things and casts vision for them. And, uh, and the Jews sign on. They, they were inspired and they said, let's get to work. And uh, they get to work and sure enough, they face opposition. That's what we'll see this week. And that's what happens anytime that good gospel work happens. Anytime that beauty is beginning to be put back into ashes, anytime that something's been being rebuilt by the gospel, you can expect opposition. And that's what we see in Nehemiah chapter four. So let's read it together. <clears throat> now in Sanballat, Sanballat should look familiar if you've been with us the last couple of weeks. Sanballat is uh, someone who's been hating on Nehemiah already at this point in the narrative. When Sanballat heard that we were, we as, this is Nehemiah is also the narrator, we were building the wall, he was angry, greatly enraged, and jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah, another hater, Tobiah Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. 
Hear, O God, this is Nehemiah praying. Nehemiah prays, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we, Nehemiah and his Jewish brothers and sisters, built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah, and now he's joined by two other groups of folks, the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Kind of ran things up, right? They were throwing jabs at them, verbal jabs there in the first couple of verses. Well, now they, they're ready to pick up arms. Verse 9, And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Well, at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest part of the space behind the wall and open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. Kind of sounds like Mel Gibson and Braveheart, doesn't he? Right there. Uh, verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all... Return to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half my servants worked on construction, half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from each from one another. And the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept the weapon at his right hand. The word of the Lord. All right, three questions tonight. Uh, who, why, how? All right, who is our enemy? Why is our enemy such a threat? And how do we overcome our enemy? Who is our enemy? Why is our enemy such a threat? How do we overcome our enemy? So who is our enemy? Well, right here, verse 7, you get Nehemiah and he names some names right there, doesn't he? He mentions some of the same people, uh, namely Sanballat and Tobiah that he named back in chapter 2. 
they were hating on his cause back there, but now things are getting way more intense. You have Sanballat. Sanballat's a Samaritan. Samaria is to the north of Jerusalem. You've got Tobiah. Tobiah's an Ammonite, and the Ammonites are to the east of Jerusalem. You've got the Arabs. The Arabs are to the south of Jerusalem. You see them mentioned? And then you have the Ashdodites. The Ashdodites are to the west of Jerusalem. So now he's got these enemies literally coming at him from every side. And at the beginning of the chapter, we see that they're using psychological warfare. They're using their words, verses 2 and 3. And then things get amped up in verse 8, and they say they're going to go to war. They're going to fight them. It's going to be physical. Now, I know Nehemiah doesn't mention him directly, but Nehemiah's real opponents are not Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, or the Ashdodites. His real opponent here is Satan. See, Satan's the one who's lurking behind their words. He's lurking behind their threats. He's the one who's behind them as the human vehicles. There's darker powers driving these people. I know that's hard for us to hear as Westerners. That's hard for us to swallow. We, we only believe in things that we can empirically account for. Only things that we can smell, see, touch, feel, and hear and prove. But this isn't true in the global south. This hasn't been true for the last, for the first 1900 years after Christ's return. These cultures, the cultures of the global south and the cultures of history, they gave great weight to spiritual powers. Go to any museum, you'll see it. And we would do well to explore this realm of reality, and it is of utmost importance for us as Christians to realize that there is this spiritual war, particularly when we face opposition. See, think about it. When the work of the gospel is stunted, we usually only deal with it on a vertical plane. When the gospel's not going forward, we blame ourselves, and that's not an altogether bad thing. Usually we play some responsibility for why the gospel's not going forward. But then we look outward. We're still on the vertical plane here. We're still working right here, and we see it with other people. We see that the reason the gospel's not going forward is because of their sin. We see that it's the culture. But that's way too simple of a view. Because there's something behind our sin. It's Satan. There's something, there's, there, there's something behind the evil in our culture. It's Satan. There's something behind the sin in other people. It's Satan. See, our New Testament reading that Rachel read earlier mentioned that we don't struggle against flesh and blood. We don't struggle against Sanballat and Tobiah. We don't struggle against conservatives or liberals. But against the dark powers of Satan. But many of us, we, we use Satan, we, we think of him wearing his red suit, we think of his tails, we think of his horns, we think of his pitchfork, and then we don't think of much else. And if that's the way we view him, we won't recognize his influence in our lives. And it'll undo us. But if we do recognize him, we're going to reap some benefits. For one is, we'll begin to take things less personal. See, Nehemiah doesn't turn in vengeance towards his haters. But he prays for them. And his prayer in verse 9 isn't a real nice prayer, is it? 
you know, he's not saying, hey, uh, God, will you convert these, <laughs> these people? He doesn't do that. What he does is that he asks God to execute justice on them. He might say, that's awful mean. But it's very different for, to pray to God to execute justice than it is for you to pray to execute, than for you to execute justice on your enemies. Because when you pray, then you're leaving open that the possibilities that your enemies might not be Jesus's enemies. And even if they are Jesus's enemies, we have the commands in the New Testament that we are to love and pray for our enemies. But as we pray for our enemies, we're going to begin to see that Satan is the one who lies behind their wicked ways. So who's your enemy? It's Satan. Well, why is he such a threat? If Satan is our true enemy, what's he trying to do? What he's trying to do is he's trying to stop the work that God's called you to do. I mean, think about it. The last couple of weeks we've been talking about, what, what is your calling? I mean, that was our... That, that, that was our question the first week. Nehemiah had this particular calling uh, to go and rebuild the wall. And God's given each of us particular callings. Your calling is different than mine. My calling is different than yours. And then last week we looked at what might that calling look like? What's the shape of that? What are the contours of our calling? And now we're trying to be realistic. That if we begin to embrace our calling, what's going to happen? But what's going to happen is that you're going to face opposition to stop. See, if Satan gets Nehemiah and God's people to quit rebuilding the wall, then he's achieved his goal. So then our goal should be the opposite. Our goal should be to keep going. But that's a lot easier said than done, isn't it? What makes it so tempting to quit? Well, look at the taunts, starting in verse 2, to see what Satan's really trying to do with these taunts. The first question, you see it, what are these feeble Jews doing? Now, Nehemiah knows they're feeble. <laughs> you know, they came, when he came back, they were, uh, they, they were in a coma. You know, they, they knew that they should be rebuilding this wall, and they just didn't. They were almost inviting uh, their enemies to come and raid them. So when they say they're feeble, they're not lying about the state of the Jews. I mean, moreover, this task is huge, and they don't have a great track record of being able to get stuff done. Will they restore for it themselves? Do you see that next question? Again, it's trying to call them a bunch of weaklings. The third one, will they sacrifice? Now, he's not talking about sacrifice like, you know, something that costs them something. He's talking about worship, the sacrifices of the Old Testament. And the opponents are essentially saying, do you really think that a little extra religious activity is going to make these walls rise all by themselves? And when they ask this question, will they sacrifice, it's going to make them feel insecure. Because their faith that they've been living out, that they've been coming out of this state, this season of spiritual coolness, while their walls lay at their feet. Then they've got this next question, will they finish up in a day? So what they're really saying is, hey, you guys got stirred up in effort, like almost overnight. Um, they could tell that Nehemiah had really brought, had roused them in their enthusiasm. And they're trying to squash it by saying, will they finish up in a day? They're making fun of them. And then the last question, will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? 
Well, I didn't know this, but as I was looking at the passage this week and what I found out reading some other stuff is that burned stones, you may know this, city boy like me didn't know this, but uh, burned stones, they, they undergo this chemical change and it robs the stones of their strength. But here's the thing. These stones haven't been burned. The gates were burned, but the stones weren't. Therefore, they're usable. And so Sanballat was lying to them. Now, I know that these are just words. And I know there's this saying that sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, if you look at the scriptures, it really should say something more like this. Sticks and stones can only break my bones, but words can destroy my life. I mean, think about the New Testament. The New Testament, uh, the sins of the tongue are spoken way more harshly than a lot of things that we give weight to as great sins, right? And that's why Satan uses them. Because he knows they can destroy our life. He's trying to destroy their morale. He's mixing truth with lies to play on their inner insecurity, to play on their self-doubt, to prey on their fear of failing. And the reason that this is so effective is that when someone echoes the fears that you already entertain, then we're infinitely more liable to give up. Now here's where things really spiral. If we do quit, when we're tempted to quit, then we're sitting there unfruitful. We begin to be convinced that we're unloved. It leaves us depressed. At least in our own estimation, we begin to think that we're unfit for Christian duty from this day forth. So do you see how these ancient words have quite a lot of relevance for us today? I mean, don't these verbal jabs sound familiar? Think about it. Just as you begin to make some headway in your sanctification, you begin to hear things, at least in your own head or maybe from others, like it won't last. Holiness is just a phase. You'll grow out of it eventually. Or you begin to serve in some way that you've, that's been, you've been haunting you perhaps for years and you step out in faith and begin to serve in this way and you do it for a few months, maybe a year, and you begin to think, you know what, this isn't going real well. The, 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 the people aren't really responding to me in the way that I thought. Maybe I'm not cut out for this, so I'll just quit. Or maybe you know you, 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 that you've been in isolation, that you need to begin to initiate some healthy friendships. You, and, and people, when you do, people begin to respond with, I'm busy. And instead of thinking that it might actually be true, you automatically go to the place that says, these people don't want to be my friends. Or maybe people are making accusations at you that you know in your heart of hearts aren't true. And after a while, the accusations just keep coming and you just begin to think that they might just be right. Or maybe, maybe you long to be married and you dip your toes into the dating scene and you're denied. And you begin to believe that you're utterly undesirable. Or maybe you feel in your call, your specific calling that we've been talking about the last few weeks is going to force you to move away from family 
you begin to voice what God could be calling you to do and your family just questions your love for them. So do you see, do you see why Satan is such a threat? It should get you to start asking, how can I possibly overcome such a skillful foe? One who knows how to exaggerate all my self-doubts. So how do we overcome our enemy? I think our text gives us a few pointers. You got Nehemiah here. He, he's got Sam Ballot throwing these verbal grenades at him. And he's got these, and, and, and the Jews are overhearing these as well. And it's got to be jarring. Nehemiah knows that if they stop the work, the chances of them restarting are really, really slim. So what does he do? What does Nehemiah do? What does our text tell us? Well, on one level, he, he gets very practical. And his plans are extremely wise. So what does he do? He arms the workers. He posts a guard by day and by night. He communicates a very clear, proud, a very clear plan, and that's the practical. But he doesn't just have something practical. He also speaks at their heart. Do, do you see it? Verse 9, he prays. That's not very practical. It's a lot easier to slap some cement and some stones on there. I mean, if he really wanted to get it done, that's what he'd be doing, but he doesn't. Verse 9, he stops, he prays. And then in verses 14 and 20, he shares with the people his own trust, his own confidence in God. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. He's great and awesome. So fight. Look at verse 20. He says, our God will fight for you. So do you see it? Nehemiah has this secret source. He goes to his secret source, namely God, in verse 9 via prayer. And then he encourages the people to draw from that same source when he says, remember the Lord. He's going to fight for you. So in the end, God's people, they do overcome. They overcome because God fought for them. Somehow the voices of Sanballat, the Ashdodites, Tobiah, the Ammonites, the Arabs, all died out. Their enemies faded away. The wall got built. So the saying really is true. One with God makes you the majority. One with God makes you the majority. And this is true all over the scriptures. I mean, I just thought of a few. One, one place is Judge, Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7, you have Gideon. Gideon is the leader of God's people. And he's going against the Midianites. He has 32,000 soldiers. And God says, I need you to send 22,000 of them home. Can you imagine being Midian? Or can you imagine being Gideon at that point? Are you kidding me? You just sent over two-thirds of my army back home? I kind of need these people if I'm going to defeat uh, the army that's, uh, that's numbered as more than the grains of sand on the shore. That's what the text says. 22,000 of them went home. He's got 10,000 left. And God comes to get in and he says, hey, still too many. I'm going to whittle you down to 300. In other words, he cuts his army by over 99%. So he's got 300 people left. And God says, all right, I need you to take these 300 soldiers. I need to, need you to put them around the camp of the Midianites. So they go all the way around. And when they go around, he says, hey, all, you're going to need three things. You're going, to need a, uh, you're going to need a torch. You're going to need a jar. And you're going to need a trumpet. This is a war. And they're going to have trumpets and jars and torches. 
not swords and knives and shields. And they go around and he said, hey, when, when, uh, at, at, at my signal, I need you to blow the trumpet. I need you to light your torch. I need you to put your jar on your torch. I need you to break the jars. You got to think, think if you're one of those 300 people. Are you kidding me? You really think this is going to work? They do it in the middle of the night. This happens. And, you, you know, the, the, the whole army of Midian wakes up at the trumpets and the, and the, and the, uh, and the um, breaking of the jars. Freaks them out. And the text says that they turned against one another and the Midianites defeated themselves while God's people were just encircled around them and watched. They didn't even break a sweat. So the Lord indeed fought for them. You got David and Goliath. I know this is an old timer right here. You've got a little guy and you got a giant. The giant's a skilled warrior. He's got all the resources necessary to do military fighting. And you've got a little guy. The little guy doesn't have any formal battle training. He doesn't have any sophisticated army. He doesn't even have a legitimate weapon. All he has are rocks and a slingshot. Goliath would be a 10,001 favorite in Vegas, wouldn't he? But David puts the rock in his slingshot and hurls it in just the right place in Goliath's head and Goliath falls over dead. The Lord indeed fought for him. Think about the 12 disciples. These guys have got to be the most pathetic group of leaders that you can possibly imagine. These guys have just betrayed Jesus. They just abandoned Jesus. They just went to sleep on Jesus. And then after Jesus' death and resurrection, he, Jesus goes to them and tells them that you're going to go into all the world and make disciples. Are you kidding me? These guys' resumes are awful. How could you go from being a failure to a shining example? Well, the answer is resurrection. See, I know it seemed impossible that Nehemiah and his squad could get this job done amidst such intense opposition. I know it seemed impossible for David to slay Goliath. I know it seemed impossible that the disciples were the cornerstone leaders for the church. I know it seemed impossible that Gideon and his 300 soldiers could defeat the Midianites. But none of those are the most impossible feats in all of human history. The most impossible feat in all of human history was the resurrection of Jesus. See, Jesus was dead. Not like almost dead. Dead, like he was turned blue. He didn't have a pulse. And not only was his body dead, but he had absorbed the sins of the world. He died with the sins of you and with me on him. And then he rises again. He rises again by God's spirit. And now God's spirit dwells in you. The Lord will fight for you. If God is for us, who can be against us? And this truth has got to be the foundation of your soul as you look to see the gospel expand in you and in the world. Because we're just going to face one discouragement after the other. It's like as we go about our calling in the power of God's spirit, it's like there's a cloud that hangs over you. You're working your tail off. But you know what's behind the cloud? It's the smiling face of God. See, your afflictions might be great. You might be greatly discouraged. But you can't take away the pleasure of God from your life. 
The, the devil is just going to keep trying to place undue burdens on you. He's going to cheat you out of peace and comfort. He's going to attack you inwardly so that you wallow in your past sins. He's going to keep you sad by casting uncertainty about God's grace in your life. But brother and sister, God loves you. He proved it. He proved it with his life and with his resurrection and with his death. And it's during your opposition that you're going to be increasingly convinced of his grace. See, brothers and sisters, if we adopt God's calling for our life, we will face opposition. And you'll begin to see in the midst of your affliction that communion with Jesus is increasingly sweet because you can't go anywhere else. So let's go there together. Let's pray. Lord, help us to see Satan for who he is. Lord, that he is indeed powerful. He is indeed behind such seemingly normal discouragement in our life. Um, but Lord, I pray that we would see him just as a mirage. Uh, Lord, that he's kind of like uh, the wizard in the Wizard of Oz. Lord, he's just... Um, he really is fangless, toothless, uh, when compared with your power. And so, Lord, I pray we would draw on your power and the encouragement that comes from you, Lord, that we would really know in our heart of hearts that if you're for us, no one can be against us. Lord, that with you, we really are the majority. We pray these things in your name. Amen.